From these windows to the past, another window is opening to the moving lives of Tawhirir Qurratul Ain, the greatest heroine in the Babi dispensation, and Khadija Bagom, the wife of the Bab. Tawhiri was born in 1817, the same year that Baha'u'llah was born. Her given name was Fatima, but she was rarely called by that name. She was called Umme Salme. Later she was called Zarintaj, which means the golden crown. As we see in the course of history, when she corresponded with Sayyid Kazem, he addressed her as Qurratul Ain, which means the solace of the eye. Later in Badasht, Baha'u'llah bestowed upon her the title of Tahire, which means the pure one. Abdul Baha placed her station in the level of Sarah, the Virgin Mary, and Fatima. Western literature called her the Persian Joan of Arc a prodigy of science as well as beauty. Professor Edward G. Brown, the Orientalist from England, said, The appearance of a heroine such as Tahereh in that time in Iran was not only a prodigy, but rather a miracle. And if the Babi faith did not have any other claim to greatness, producing a heroine like Tahereh would have been sufficient. The mother of the president of Austria said, I shall do for women of Austria what Tahira gave her life to do for the women of Persia. She was born in the city of Ghazvin, which took pride in that it had more than 100 of the most learned clergy within its gates. She was born to a very wealthy and learned family. Her father, Haji Mullah Saleh, was not only a very high-positioned clergyman, but also was very wealthy. As a matter of fact, he gave her as a gift a village, which she called it Behjatabad, which means the abode of happiness. The father had one older brother, Mullah Muhammad Taghi. We shall refer to him as Taghi. And as we see, he was a bitter enemy of Sayyid Kazem and Sheikh Ahmad, the two luminaries who came before the appearance of the Bab. He was also an enemy of the Bab. The father had one younger brother, whose name was Mullah Ali, who was very friendly towards Tahere, and later he became a Babi. At age 13, the parents married her to her cousin, the son of Mullah Taghi, and the husband's name was Mullah Muhammad. As you know, the marriage in that culture was prearranged, and cousins would marry each other. She had three children from that marriage, two sons and one daughter. None of them became babis or believers. After her martyrdom, all of them ran away from the house because the father was ill-treating them. The daughter at the age of 22 died one year after the martyrdom of Tahereh. Tahereh received her education 
through attending the courses given by her father, her uncle, and other learned clergies. Many times in lectures attended by about 200 students she would be attending, but being female, she would sit behind curtains. It was not unusual for her to voice her disagreement with her father or her uncle by bringing convincing proofs. Soon she became known among the students as a very learned person. As a matter of fact, her older brother, who later succeeded the father, said that the boys of the family never dared to talk when Tahere was present, because she could easily discover their mistake and would make them realize their weakness. They preferred silence in her presence. She outdistanced her brothers in progress, but being a woman, she was not given any degree and had no place in the ecclesiastic hierarchy. So many times her father stated how he wished she were a boy who could succeed him and bring more prestige to the family. One day in the library of her cousin, she discovered some books written by Sheikh Ahmad and Sayyid Qasim. After reading a few pages, she became highly interested in these books and asked the cousin if she could borrow them to take them home for studying. The cousin, of course, refused to do so and told her that these books were written by very progressive thinkers, Sheikh Ahmad and Sayyid Qasim, whose doctrines and tenets were highly opposed by her father and uncle. Their doctrines being, one, that the resurrection is not that of rising of the body, but spiritual in nature. The second doctrine, that the promised one, the Ra'im, would be born of a mother, and he would not be coming out of one thousand years of hiding, as Muslims believed and expected. And also that the appearance of the Ra'im was near. The third doctrine was that God shall continue to send educators to mankind. This was somewhat different from what Muslims believed. They believed that Muhammad was the seal of the prophets and after him no other messenger of God would appear. Well, after arguing with the cousin, she won and he gave her the books. Even though she was married, she spent most of her time at home. She was very close to her mother and would spend long hours in her father's library. When her father noticed that she was reading the writings of Sheikh Ahmad and Sayyid Qasim, they had many heated arguments, and he raised violent objection toward her reading these books. She started corresponding with Sayyid Qasim, but as we know, Sheikh Ahmad at that time was no longer living. The first letter she wrote to Sayyid Qasim was when he was teaching in Karbala, the holy city of Islam, which has the largest theologian school. She wrote a letter of apology and supported the cause and the thoughts of Sheikh Ahmad, the previous teacher. 
said Kazem replied to her, addressing her, Ya waratul aini varuhal fa'adi. That means, O solace of my eyes and the joy of my heart. From then on, she was called Goratul Ain because that was the name that Sayyid Kazem called her in that letter. Their correspondence was done through her uncle Ali. At that time, as you know, women were quite restricted. As the opposition of the father and the uncle became more, she pretended that she was going to Karbala and Najaf, the two holy cities, for pilgrimage. This was quite pleasing to the family. They thought she would become more religious and would start to forget about her thoughts on the doctrines of Sheikh Ahmad and Sayyid Kazem. With the help of her uncle Ali, she and her sister Marzia and uncle Ali, they all went to Karbala. Unfortunately, she arrived ten days too late. Said Kazem had already died on December 31st, 1843, the year before the declaration of the Ba'ath. So she became the guest of Said Kazem's wife and stayed with her for the next three years. She joined the company of those students of Said Kazem who remained. The rest of the students had dispersed to find the Ghaim. Soon she became known in Karbala for her knowledge and ability to debate and convince even the best of the clergy. She had the whole library in her head and quoted pages of books without mistake to support her reasons. She was eagerly expecting the coming of the promised one, but being a woman, she had restrictions on traveling. She prayed and meditated constantly. Until one night, in a dream, she saw a young Sayyid wearing a black cloak and green turban appearing in heaven, means he was suspended in the air, reciting certain verses, one of which she wrote down in her book, in her dream. She woke up, exhilarated, and wrote the verse down. As soon as she heard about the intended departure of her sister's husband, Muhammad Ali, from Karbala to go in search of the Ghaim, she sent a message to him, and the message said she was sure that he would meet the promised one in the course of his journey. She said, when you meet him, on my behalf tell him, Lam it means, the effulgences of thy face flashed forth, and the rays of thy visage arose high. Then speak the word, Am I not your Lord? Thou art, thou art, we will all reply. She also gave him a sealed letter to deliver to the Ghaim. Muhammad Ali eventually met the Bab in Shiraz, and when the Bab received her letter and heard the poetry, he accepted her as the letter of the living. She was the only woman, the seventeenth letter of the living, right before the last one, who was Odus. This was about August in 1844. 
Not long after she heard about having been accepted, Mullah Ali Bastami, the fourth letter of the living, arrived in Karbala. By the way, he was the first Babi who was martyred. When she saw a copy of Ahsanul Qasas, which means the best of stories, which is also known as Qayyumul Asma, or the commentary of the chapter of Joseph, which, as you know, this book is the mightiest book of the Bab, has 111 chapters. The first one was the one that was revealed to Mullah Hussein at the night of the declaration of the Bab. To her intense delight, when she read part of this book, she discovered that the same verse that she heard in her dream was in that manuscript. Later she translated to Persian the whole Qayyum al-Asma, which was in Arabic. Now, with her immovable conviction and bewitching eloquence, she began to teach the new faith. She converted the wife of Sayyid Qazim, and her active teaching caused a turmoil. But the shock came when she was found not to put on her mourning attire at the beginning of the mourning month of Muharram, which coincides with the martyrdom of Imam Hussein. But instead, with her sister, put on festive attire and celebrated the birth of the Bab, which is the first day of that month. Now she has been in Karbala for three years, when a delegation of Shia, Sunni, Christian and Jewish came and tried to dissuade her from speaking the new message, in the center of Islam. But her reasoning and force of argument confounded them. So they complained to the authorities in Karbala, who for three months put her house under surveillance so that no one could come or go until they could hear what to do from the governor in Baghdad. When no word came, she told the authorities that she and a few companions would leave for Baghdad. This coincided with the time when the Bab had instructed the believers to go towards Khorasan, a province in Iran. She was stoned as she left Karbala. Among her companions were the mother and sister of Mullah Hussein. In Baghdad, she was the guest of the grandfather of Dr. Zia Baghdadi, who in the early 20th century was a great Baha'i teacher in Chicago. She lectured from behind the curtain. Soon her students from Karbala moved there and added to her audience. Here she challenged the clergy through the governor to come for a public debate about their questions of her ideas. Of course they knew better and did not accept but became upset and asked the governor to transfer her and the other ladies to the house of the Mufti, who is the canon of Baghdad. This was in 1847. She spent three months there, and the Mufti soon was captivated. He saw a dream that the Shia ulama came to the shrine of Imam Hussein and opened the grave so the body was visible. When they wanted to take it out, the Mufti 
threw himself on it. He asked Tawhere to interpret this dream. He told her that he shared her belief, but how badly he was afraid of the sword of the Sultan. It was there where Dr. Lutfullahi Hakim's grandfather, a physician to Muhammad Shah, was on pilgrimage and heard about Tahir's lectures, and with curiosity attended a few lectures, accepted its truth, and taught large number of the Jews in Persia. Tahir fasted frequently in those days. One day a message came from the capital, Istanbul, that Tahere was free, but must leave the country. She was about thirty years old. With about thirty people, Arab and Persian believers, she left Baghdad for Khanagain, which is at the border of Persia. Dr. Baghdadi's grandfather paid for all of their expenses and accompanied her. Upon their entry back in Iran, in the small town of Karand, her eloquence and charm impressed the chiefs of that area, who offered to place twelve thousand armed men under her command to follow her wherever she went. She blessed them and said to stay at their homes and take care of their families. These people were Aliyullahis, a sect of Islam who equates Ali with God. In the next city of Kermanshah, she had an enthusiastic reception and interviews with princes, ulama, and government officials. She had the Bab's commentary on the Surah of Kosar, which had been revealed by the Bab for Wahid to be translated and read in public. The governor and his family became believers. She challenged the chief clergy to debate. People became anxious about it, which upset the clergy even more. He could not directly agitate the people to kill Tahere because of his fear of the governor, but he sent a message to Tahere's father asking him to send relatives to remove her. Four ruffians from her hometown came and with the help of a local officer attacked her companion's place, beat the people, and looted their property. The governor caught them and restored their property. In the town of Sahne, she and her companion stayed two days in that village. Here chiefs of tribes went in advance and welcomed her and her companions to town. In the city of Hamadan, she stayed two months. Again, the governor and notables came and visited her. However, one of the leading ulama became very opposed to her. But again, his hands were tied because of fear of the governor. Upon hearing of his evil attitude, she sent him a long letter explaining the faith of the Bab. She sent it through a believer who arrived when this clergy had other clergymen at his house discussing how to handle Tahere. The messenger was like a red flag to a bull. They fell upon him and beat him until he was unconscious. When his body was returned to Tahere, 
She was with a few princesses who feared her grief over this, but were astonished at her composure. She went to him and said, Mullah Ibrahim, peace upon you, that you have suffered in the path of your beloved. He opened his eyes and asked what he could do next. It was not too long after this that he shed his blood in the path of the Baal. Tahiri was planning to go to Tehran to try to meet Muhammad Shah and tell him about the teachings of the Baal. But under instruction from her father, her two brothers arrived in Hamadan to welcome her back to Ghazvin, urging her to return home. This trip took one week and was in very bad weather. She reluctantly consented, but told most of the companions to return to their homes. With her were her sister's husband, the letter of the living, a young man engaged to her daughter, Mullah Ibrahim, and Sheikh Saleh. Now back in Ghazvin, she went to her father's home, and the two Babis stayed in Karvansarai. The first night of her arrival, there was a family council of her father, Uncle Taghi, and her husband. After a heated argument and the men insulting everything and everyone she believed in, Uncle Taghi, in rage, struck her several times. She said the fatal words, Oh, Uncle, I see your mouth filled with blood. The next day her husband sent a few ladies to ask her to go to his home. She said, It has been three years since our separation. Had you shown any interest and followed me to Karbala, surely I could have awakened you. I have cast you out of my life forever. Her father tried to reconcile them, but got nowhere. A few weeks later, he divorced her. During the first few days, she used to go to her sister's home, who was a believer. There Tahere would meet the wives of prominent people who were anxious to savor every word. Her brother-in-law, the letter of the living, was later martyred in the fortress of Sheikh Tabarsi. At this time, a man from Shiraz, an admirer of Sheikh Ahmad and Sayyid Qasim, was passing through Ghazvin. He was not a Babi, but was on his way to the fortress of Maku to investigate the faith of the Bab. This was in the latter part of 1847. When he arrived, he saw in the marketplace that a man barefoot with his turban tied around his neck was being dragged while onlookers were pelting and cursing him. He inquired about his guilt and was told that he publicly praised Sheikh Ahmad and Sayyid Qasim and the clergy Tahirah's uncle Taghi pronounced him a heretic and decreed his expulsion from town. In his amazement, he went to Taghi's school and found Taghi openly insulting the memory of Sheikh Ahmad and Sayyid Qasim. He wanted to punch him in the mouth in front of everyone, but kept his peace and instead went and bought a dagger and waited for the right opportunity. 
Learning that Taghi was Imam Jume who led the mass prayer on Friday and usually went to the mosque early in the morning to say his private prayer, he went on Thursday night and hid in the mosque. At dawn, when Taghi came and prayed, he stabbed him in the mouth and vitals and escaped. As soon as Taghi's son found his father dead with blood in his mouth, Tawhere became the prime suspect masterminding the assassination. Many Babis were arrested, but Tawhere's father would not let him take her out of his home. Upon the insistence of her ex-husband, she and her maid were taken for interrogation. She denied having had any part in it. To put psychological pressure on her, branding with hot iron was ordered, and they pushed the hands of her maid under the sliding door for branding. Tawhere felt desperate. So she faced Maku and implored the Bob. All of a sudden shouts were heard that the assassin was found. The man from Shiraz, seeing so many innocent people being arrested, made a deal with authorities that they should release all the innocent if with proof he would give them the murderer. When they promised, he said it was himself and explained the whole story. This admission was in front of the judge and the ex-husband, the son of Taghi, who did not accept the story. The murderer said, I did hide the dagger under a certain bridge, and when it was found, they arrested him, but did not keep their promise to release the rest. He and four Babis were sent to Tehran. Sheikh Saleh, the Arab companion, was martyred on arrival in Tehran. He was the first to shed his blood on the Persian soil. Twenty thousand followed. When Baha'u'llah heard about a few Babis in jail, he visited them and gave them some money. Everyone heard about it. The murderers saw that they did not keep their promise to release the rest, so at night he escaped and went to the home of Rezahone Sardar, a Babi who was an officer in the royal army. He stayed hidden, but later went to the fort of Sheikh Tabarsi and was martyred. Baha'u'llah was accused by the ex-husband of Tawhere of helping the murderer to escape and was put in the same prison for a few days. They did not know that Baha'u'llah was masterminding the rescue of Tawhere herself. Through intrigues of the ex-husband, who now had replaced his father as the Imam Jum'eh or prayer leader, the three innocent Babis were returned and martyred in Ghazvin. This emboldened the ex-husband, who now was going after Tawhere herself. Tawhere, through her intuition, sensed the forthcoming rescue, wrote him a letter stating the futility of his efforts, and declared, my God will rescue me from your clutches within nine days. If not, you can do with me whatever you wish.
he was hesitant to show this letter to others and to accept such a bold challenge, but some heard about it. The evening of the day when Taghi was murdered, a Babi Muhammad Hadi Farhadi left Ghazvin for Tehran and attained the presence of Baha'u'llah giving the news of the events. Later he was summoned by Baha'u'llah and instructed to return to Ghazvin and rescue Tahereh as planned by Baha'u'llah. He was given a sealed letter from Baha'u'llah that he should deliver to Tahereh through his wife, Khatun John, that she should go in disguise of a beggar and to wait at the entrance of Tahereh's house. No one was allowed to enter Tahereh's home. The letter was delivered and shortly Tahereh came out and followed her to a carpenter's house which no one suspected as her hiding place. At night, when the city gates were closed, they went over the wall and reached a slaughterhouse outside the town when, under direction of Baha'u'llah, an attendant with three horses were ready. They did not take the usual road to Tehran and eventually safely reached Baha'u'llah's home. This sudden disappearance proved the supernatural power of the faith, and her older brother, the same day acknowledged the truth of the faith of the Bab, but did not follow it. Tahereh, by the same intuition that caused her to recognize the Bab, also recognized the station of Baha'u'llah. For the next five or six months, she was the guest of Baha'u'llah. She was very fond of Abdul Baha, who was only four years old. One day she was with Abdul Baha when the famous and erudite Wahid came to visit her. He waited a long time, and friends told Tahereh, Shouldn't you leave the child and go and visit the great Wahid? She looked at Abdul Baha and said, Shall I leave thee, the protector of the cause, foreseeing one of the followers of the cause? She knew who Abdul Baha was. Nobody understood her. Abdul Baha relates that once he was sitting on Tahura's lap while she was conversing with Wahid through a curtain. As you know, men and women in that culture visited when a curtain was separating them. Wahid was reciting and elaborating on some Islamic traditions, and she interrupted him by saying, Oh, Yahya! Yahya was the given name of Wahid. Oh, Yahya! Today is not the time for reciting the traditions. Bring forth an act, if you have the knowledge. And we saw how valiantly Wahid gave his life in the struggle of Nairgis. Tahereh, who had never seen the Bab, wanted to go to Maku, but Baha'u'llah advised her that it was impossible. As we recall, in the early part of April of 1848, after spending Nowruz with Mullah Hussein, the Bab was transferred from Maku to Chehrikh, and it is very possible that Mullah Hussein and Tahereh met in the house of Baha'u'llah while Mullah Hussein was on his way to Maku 
or on his return from Maku when he again went to Tehran. In about May or June 1848, Baha'u'llah advised Mirza Musa, his brother, to take Tawhere secretly through the city gate, as you know enemies were still looking for her, and head for Khorasan, where Quddus and Mullah Hussein were. This was done successfully. They rode through the gate with guards on both sides, and they even never saw them. After about seven miles, they reached an orchard at the foot of the mountains with a vacant building. The caretaker accepted to let Tahere and her maid use the house, and he promised to guard them. Mirza Musa returned to Baha'u'llah, who said that the house was providentially prepared for her reception. She stayed there seven days. Baha'u'llah instructed Mirza Musa to make arrangements for his own departure for Khorasan and headed for Shahrud, where Tahere joined him. Both started for Badasht. Badasht was a summer resort full of gardens for the nobility. Quddus joined them there. Many believers at the bidding of the Bab were at Badasht waiting to join Baha'u'llah on his intended trip to Khorasan. Eighty-one believers were the guests of Baha'u'llah who rented three gardens for Tawhere, Quddus, and himself. That conference lasted twenty-two days, and every day Baha'u'llah revealed a tablet. Also, he conferred new titles on everyone, such as Tawhere for Qoratul Ain, Quddus for Mullah Muhammad Ali Bar Furushi, the last letter of the living, and for himself, Baha. Badasht was where Tawhere came out without the veil over her face, with Quddus having his sword ready for fatal blow, and poor Abdul Khalid so shaken that he cut his own throat and left the company with a few others. Tawhere's appearance was like a thunderbolt. She kept her serenity and with an eloquent and matchless speech said, I am the blast of the trumpet, I am the call of the bugle, I am the word which the Ghawim to utter, the word which shall put to flight the chiefs and nobles of the earth. This day is a day on which the feathers of the past are burst asunder. She concluded her speech with a verse from Quran, Verily, amid gardens and rivers shall the pious dwell, in the seat of truth, in the presence of the potent king. As she mentioned the king, she glanced at Baha'u'llah and Quddus, but not clearly revealing Baha'u'llah. The followers were divided between Quddus and Tawhere, the eighteenth and the seventeen letters of the living, who on a few occasions denounced each other, but Baha'u'llah's mastery healed the wound and brought reconciliation. Her insight was owed to her months of staying close to Baha'u'llah. On those days the Bab was brought from the prison fortress of Chehrir to Tabriz for examination, and for the first time he said he was the Ghaim, which meant 
the abrogation of Islamic laws and traditions. The same purpose was achieved at the distance badashed under the direction of Baha'u'llah. You see, the Persian Bayan was just completed by the Bab, and now the new laws revealed and the old were abrogated. When, after the conference, a few rigid followers reported to the Bab about Tahira's poor discretion in showing her face and not respecting the established Islamic traditions, he replied, What am I to say regarding her, whom the tongue of power and glory names Tahira, means the pure one? At the end of the conference, Quddus and Tahira shared the same hoda. Hoda is a covered couch mounted on a pack animal. Baha'u'llah and the rest of the companions all headed towards Niala, which is near Mazandaran. In the early dawn, they woke up by stones being hurled at them, and most of the followers fled and joined Mullah Hussein on the way to Sheikh Tabarsi. Baha'u'llah put his garment on Quddus and sent him to a safe place and put the only other man remaining who had drawn his sword to protect Tahere in charge of her. Baha'u'llah negotiated with the ruffians who gave them back some of his property. Baha'u'llah and Tahere headed towards Nur, Baha'u'llah's hometown. The attack in Niala occurred in mid-July of 1848, and as we remember, it was about July 21st, when Mullah Hussein and 202 believers left Mashhad, heading towards Mazandaran and ended in Sheikh Tabarsi. On the way towards Nur, Baha'u'llah put Abu Turab, the brave young man, in charge of Tahereh, and he made side trips. It was in Bandaragaz, when the edict for his arrest and execution came, and the same day, the news of the death of the Shah arrived. Tahere was intercepted and was sent to Tehran in prison in the house of Mahmoud Khawle, Mahmoud Khawle Kalantar. Kalantar means the mayor. Meanwhile, Quddus was captured and imprisoned in Sari in the house of the chief clergy. Tahere was kept in that house for four years. Once she was brought to the presence of 18-year-old King Nasruddin Shah, who liked her appearance, that time she was 32 years old. Later, the Shah wrote her a letter urging her to deny the Bab and become a Muslim. If she would do so, he wrote, he would marry her and make her the guardian of the ladies of his household. She answered it, تو ملک و جاوه سکندری من و رسم راوه غلندری اگر آن خوش است تو در خوری و اگر این بد است مرا و سزا. She said, Kingdom, wealth and ruling yours. Being detached like a dervish is mine. If that is good, let it be yours. If this is bad, I long for it. Let it be mine. When he read the answer, he praised her and said, So far the history has not shown a woman like this. At first she was placed in an upstairs room 
which only could be reached by a ladder. Soon the wife of the Kalantar or mayor was captivated by her spirit, and restrictions were eased off. The princesses and wives of the notables came to listen to her. Her new faith and emancipation of women were exciting to hear. In the wedding celebration of the marriage of the son of the mayor, the women asked for her, and as soon as she appeared, the magic of her words brought people away from music and dancing. In 1852, the Prime Minister Mirza Taghi Amir Kabir, who two years earlier had ordered the execution of the Bab, appointed a few of the clergy and his deputies to interrogate her. They made seven interviews with her and found her impossible to bend. She ended her interrogation by telling them, You can kill me as soon as you like but you cannot stop the emancipation of women. The Prime Minister had no intention to learn the truth. These seven conferences or trials were to appease the notable women who otherwise would be shocked by her martyrdom. The deputies signed the death sentence. August 15, 1852 the infamous day when three Babis tried to kill the king, Baha'u'llah and all the well-known Babis were thrown in the dungeon or the Siachal of Tehran. As we know, eighty were put to death in the most cruel way. Tahere was still in the house of the Kalantar. One morning, she summoned the wife of the Kalantar, to a room, and Kalantar's wife found Tahere dressed in a white silk dress and scented with Atara rose, a heavenly perfume. The wife of Kalantar later related the story.
I showed my surprise about unusual sight. She said, I have bathed and I'm preparing to meet my beloved. I wish to free you from the care and anxiety of my imprisonment. The wife of Kalantar said, I broke into tears, but Tahira said, Do not weep. The time of your lamentation has not yet come. The time of my martyrdom is fast approaching. My last wishes are that you send your son with me to make sure they don't force me to divest myself from this attire, and that my body should be thrown into a pit and covered with earth and stones. Also, please, lock the door and do not let anyone disturb my devotion. This day I shall fast until I am face to face with my beloved. Three days after my death, a woman will come to visit you. Give her this package. Four hours after sunset, the attendants came and asked for her. She states, As I went to her room, she had her veil on and was pacing in the room. She kissed me and handed me a key to her chest and said, Whenever you open this chest and see the little things I left for you, remember me and rejoice in my gladness. She left with the guards and my son. My heart broke to see her disappear into the dark. Three hours later, my son returned with his face drenched with tears. He gave the following account. As we reached the garden of Ilkhani, she dismounted her horse and approached me and said, They apparently want to strangle me. Long ago, I have set aside this silk scarf, which I hope to be used to take my life. And she handed it to me. I found the Sardar, chief officer, drunk. I gave him the scarf and the message. He called a servant, and after a few compliments, he gave him gold coins and said, Take this scarf and go and choke this bobby woman who is causing so much trouble. She is in the servant's quarters. I followed the servant, and when he entered the room, I stood at the door. When he got close to her, she looked at him and said a few words, and this servant took the scarf back to Sardar and refused to do it. Sardar asked for coffee to sober up, and then he asked for one of his low-life servants who had been demoted to the lowest job. This evil-looking man came, and the Sardar made him drunk and gave him the scarf, and as the servant approached Tahere, he quickly wrapped the scarf around her neck and killed her. Then, as she requested, her body was lowered into a well and covered with stones and dirt. The Kalantar's wife stated, Three days later, as foretold by Tahere, a woman came and took the package. 
Nine years later, Kalantar, by the order of the king, was strangulated by twisting a rope around his neck, and his body was hung in the thoroughfare for the public to view. This was the lamentation which Tawhira was alluding to when talking to the wife of Kalantar. Remember, she told her, Do not weep. The time of your lamentation has not yet come. This was the power of intuition of Tawhira, which enabled her not only to recognize the Baal without ever seeing him, but also to recognize Baha'u'llah's station well before his receiving his mission in the Siachal of Tehran. In that stormy month of August in 1852, in the dead of night, they strangulated the beautiful and talented poetess of Ghazvin and cast her body clad in wedding dress into a pit without a trace. She was thirty-six years old. Her career was as dazzling as it was brief, and as tragic as it was eventful. What other woman except Tahire in those days had the courage, erudition, and eloquence to address and confound the ulama at the center of Islam, who ranked women slightly higher than animal and considered them not even having a soul? At her final hours, she told them, You can kill me as soon as you wish, but you cannot stop emancipation of women. How true! Unlike her fellow disciples, her fame spread far and wide in the capitals of the Western Europe. Her sacrifices and influence mean more to women than that of Joan of Arc. Her admirers are many throughout the continents. They are eager to know more about her, memorize her poetries, or set them to music, but more than all, to emulate her. May the future historians do justice to her accomplishments and influence. Some of her poetries have been translated. Many of her heart-touching odes are recited by her fanatic countrymen of today without knowing who is the composer and not realizing that the Lord mentioned in those odes signify no one else but Baha'u'llah. Indeed, the title of Zarin Tauj, or Crown of Gold, was below the station of this immortal heroine whom history will remember as Tawhireh, the title conferred upon her by the Blessed Beauty. Let us rejoice in that her longing for eternal reunion with the object of her love, whom she never met in her lifetime, was finally fulfilled.
History of Khadija Begum, the wife of the Bab. She lived about forty years after her wedding to the Bab, which was in 1842. At times she would recount the story of her glorious but tragic life to the younger members of her family, and that is the source of the following story. Many times, after relating the sad story, she would be stricken with such grief that she would lose her power of speech for a while. She and the Bab were close in age, and the house of Sayyid Ali, the uncle, and the guardian of the Bab joined each other, so they were neighbors and playmates as children. Usually the Bab chose not to join them in their games, but occasionally he did. Once after the Bab at the age of sixteen or seventeen left Shiraz for Boucher to join his other uncle for business, she had a vivid dream. She saw her cousin, the Bab, in a meadow with flowers everywhere, standing toward Qibla in attitude of prayer. He wore an outer cloak on which were embroidered Quranic verses with threads of gold. His face was quite luminous. She told her dream to her mother and the mother of the Bab, who told her that it was because they hear so much about his serious attendance to his prayers that she saw such a dream. Some years later, when the Bab returned to Shiraz after his pilgrimage to Karbala and Najaf, the holy cities in Iraq, she dreamt that Fatima, the daughter of Prophet Muhammad, came to their house and asked for her marriage to her son, Imam Hussein. Her mother, upon hearing this, rejoiced in the good fortune that awaited her. In the afternoon of the same day, the Bob's mother and grandmother came for a visit. Her two older sisters were there. One of the sisters was married to the uncle of the Bob, who was also his guardian. Khadija Begum took some sharbat, which is a fruit drink, to them and left the room. Not long after that, the two ladies got up to leave, and to Khadija Begum's surprise, the mother of the Bob kissed her on her forehead. Seeing her puzzlement, her mother explained that the kiss implied that the mother of the Bob has asked for her marriage to the Bob who was about twenty-three years old. When Khadija Begum matched the dream, and what was happening, she became quite elated. With the respect that everyone in the family gave the Bab, she felt quite proud of her coming marriage. Some two months later, the marriage took place in Uncle Ali's house, and the ceremony was officiated by the Imam Jo'eh, Imam Jo'eh Sheikh Abu Turab, who later we find was the hand of providence for protection of the Bab. This was about August of 1842, and they lived in the Bob's own house with his mother and two black servants, Mubarak and Fezeh.
The great joy of those days were beyond words. But not long after her marriage, she had a frightening dream. One night she saw in her dream a fearsome lion standing in the courtyard, and she had her arms around the lion's neck. The lion dragged her two and a half times around the perimeter of the courtyard. When she woke up, and trembling with fright, she told the Bob about her dream, and he told her it meant that their life together would not last more than two and a half years, which made her quite distressed. But he comforted her and said she should accept any adversity in the path of God. Before long, it was realized that she was pregnant, and when the due date came, she had a very long and hard labor. When the Bab's mother went to him and said Khadija Begum was at the point of death, he took a mirror that was close to him and wrote a prayer on it and told his mother to hold the mirror in front of his wife. That was done, and the child was delivered, but the baby's life was very short, possibly stillborn. The Bob's mother was quite sad and angry. She told the Bob that if he had such powers, why didn't he make an attempt to save the life of his son and spare them so much grief? He smiled and replied that he was not destined to have any child. This made her even more upset. But he said no more. The child was named Ahmad, and in Qayyumul Asma, the Bab's mighty book, the Bab speaks of Ahmad and states that he is in paradise with Fatima. He was buried at the foot of a cypress tree in Bibi Dukhtaran. During those days, the Bab did not have a definite occupation. He did lots of writing, and any time company would come, he would cover his papers with a cloth. At times, he used to go to Uncle Ali's trading house, and some afternoons, he would go for a walk in the fields outside the city and come at sunset. One day in the afternoon, he came home earlier than usual and said that this night he had a particular task to attend and asked that the dinner be served earlier. Feze, the maidservant, did so, and after supper he retired for the night. An hour later, when the house was quiet, he rose from his bed and left the room. This event was sometime before his declaration. At first, it did not alarm me, she recounted. But when it went more than an hour, I became concerned and went to look for him. He was nowhere to be found. She continued, I checked the house door, and it was locked from inside. And as I walked on the western side of the courtyard, I saw that the upper chamber was well lighted. This surprised me, because he never went into that room at that time of the night unless he had guests, and he would usually tell me when a guest was expected. With great trepidation, I climbed the steps, and there, 
I saw him, standing with his hand raised towards heaven and chanting prayers in the most melodious voice and tears streaming from his eyes. His face was so luminous as if rays of light were radiating from it. He looked so majestic. Fear seized me, and I was transfixed on the spot, trembling uncontrollably. I could not go forward or backward. He made a gesture with his hand for me to go back. This gave me enough strength to go back. I returned to my bed and could not fall asleep. And in those short bouts of sleep, I would see that scene in that upper chamber. I kept asking myself, what grave event had happened to evoke tears and supplication of such intensity? Then I heard the call of Muazzen for dawn prayer. As usual, breakfast was served in his mother's room, and I saw him going there. I went to that room, but his mother was not there. As soon as I laid my eyes upon his face, the majesty of the night before appeared to me, and I began to tremble. He asked me to sit and gave me what was left of the tea in his cup. This kindness gave me strength and courage. He asked that what was troubling me, and I boldly told him, It is the change in you. We grew up together and have been married for nearly two years, and now I see a different person in you. You have been transformed. He smiled and said, Although I did not wish for you to see me in that state, but God had ordained otherwise. He wished you to see me in that state, so with absolute certitude you recognize my station as the Ra'im. This light radiates from my heart and my being. I prostrated before him, and from then on I was there in total evanescence, only to serve him. She discovered the light of the Bab before it shone on the world, and in rank in the Babi dispensation is only second to Tahereh. When the letters of the living were completed, the Bab left Shiraz for pilgrimage to Mecca. From the port of Boucher he wrote a letter to his wife, and the letter opened with these words, My sweet love, may God preserve you. The return of the Bab to Shiraz signalized the beginning of severe persecutions. She told of the night that police suddenly raided their house and took all the books and writings, abducted the Bab, and Uncle Ali was beaten up and left behind. They took the Bab to the house of the police chief and demanded money, which he did not have, so they took his cashmere shawl, which he had around his waist. It was close to dawn when he returned home. God knows how much his mother and she worried that night. Not too long after that night, he was arrested again and detained in the house of the police chief, and the news spread that they would put him to death in that house. Uncle Ali was recovering from the beating. Nobody dared to go to see her, only her sister Zahra would come to the nearest mosque, change her veil, 
to a patched old veil of a beggar woman, and then in disguise would go to visit Khadija Bagum. Then the clergy wrote and signed his death sentence, and had it confirmed by the governor-general Hussein Khan, and when they took it to the Imam Jom'e for finalization, you remember he was the one who did the wedding ceremony. Not only did he not sign it, but scolded them and kicked them out. However, in order to solve the dilemma, he agreed to summon the Bab to the mosque for recantation. The next event was the final attack of the police chief abducting the Bab, and that night cholera broke out in the city, and in the morning Uncle Ali took the Bab's clothes to him, where he was held in the house of the police chief. His wife and mother never saw him again, and not even a chance to say farewell. The mad governor who had left the city to escape cholera under pressure from the police chief gave his approval for the release of the Bob. The Bob left for Esfahan, but they did not know it. Khadija Bagom relates, At that time we moved to Uncle Ali's house and hoped to hear some news about the Bob. The frustrated governor sent attendants to our house to seek him, but we had no idea about his whereabouts. Then the attendants went to arrest Mirza Abul Ghassem, my brother, who was ill in bed, and carried him on their shoulders to the governor's house. After severe verbal abuse and beating, he was told to produce the bab within two weeks, or pay a fine of 15,002 mounds which was a substantial sum at that time. They brought him back on their shoulders and dumped him on the hard ground of the courtyard. With the beating he received, his eyes were swollen shut with severe pain and tears streamed from them constantly. After fifteen days, the attendants came again and took him away to the governor's house. While this evil man was demanding 15,002 months from him, a letter came from the governor of Esfahan Manucher Khan, stating that the Bab was his honored guest, and no member of his family should be abused or harassed in any way. Thereupon the fine was reduced to 1,502 months. After the departure of the Bab for Esfahan, the family was in great distress and day-to-day -day expected new abuse, particularly by the frustrated governor. If it was not verbal or physical, it was psychological abuse. The people of Shiraz were warned by the criers that if a single page of the writings of the Bab was found in their possession, they would be severely punished. In their panic to escape the wrath of the merciless governor, people dashed to the house of Mirza Abul Ghassem with bundles of writings of the Bab all written by his own hand, threw them into the courtyard and dashed away hoping no one had seen them with the incriminating material. Sayyid Ali, the uncle of the Bab, advised the family to wash away the ink and bury the paper. What a deprivation for mankind. Don't you wish that you could have even a single word in his own handwriting? 
I guess it had to happen that way. You see, this was not the only time that large number of the Bab's writings were destroyed. While he was in the fortress of Maku, he revealed nine complete and separate commentaries on the whole Quran, which were sent to a believer in Tabriz for safekeeping, but their whereabout is not known. The Bab has comforted us by stating in the Bayan that a thousand perusal of his book, the Bayan, does not equal perusal of a single verse revealed by Baha'u'llah. And we have 15,000 written documents of Baha'u'llah all preserved in the archives at the World Center. Khadija Begum states that her brother Sayyid Hassan, who later became a Baha'i with the title of Afnaune Kabir from Baha'u'llah, was in Esfahan, but he did not write a single line about the Bab. At times he was hostile towards the Bab. A few times they received a letter from the Bab himself. Months before his leaving for Esfahan, the Bab had changed the titles of his house to the name of his mother and wife, and also gave the prayer of remover of difficulties to his wife, so that any time she became grief-stricken, she should chant it, and he would appear in her dream and comfort her. Later on, Uncle Ali left for Yazd. His son, Javad, and the son of another uncle of the Bab often came to visit and help Khadija Bagom and the mother of the Bab. Then fragmentary pieces of news came that the Bab was transferred to Tehran and then to the mountains of Azerbaijan. The Bab's mother appealed to her brother, Sayyid Ali, who was a Babi, to do something about the Bab's hardship. That is a time when he closed his business left for prison fortress of Chehrir, where the Bab was kept, and ended in Tehran, where he met a martyr's death by being brutally beheaded. The news of the martyrdom of Uncle Ali and later of the Bab in 1850 was kept from the women of the household. Rumors of this nature were severely denied by the men until Mirza Abul Ghassim, brother of Khadija Bagom, found it very difficult to stay in Shiraz, so he took Uncle Ali's 18-year-old and only son, Javad, with him on pilgrimage to Mecca. On the way back, Javad fell ill and died in Jeddah. The uncle went alone to visit the shrines of Karbala and Najaf in Iraq. It was more than a year after the martyrdom of the Bab, when Mirza Abul Ghassim returned home with the sad news of Javad's death and of the martyrdom of Javad's father and the Bab, they mourned for all three of them. The mother of the Bab, who could no longer tolerate the grief and particularly the tongue lashing of a brother-in-law, took off for Karbala. She was not a believer, until Baha'u'llah a decade later from Baghdad sent some believers 
who knew her to see her, and she became a Baha'i before her death. And she recognized the station of her son. Khadija Begum lived with her sister, the wife of Uncle Ali, who needed more comforting, having lost both her husband and only son within one year. The news of the martyrdom of the Bab and Uncle Ali were kept from the servant Fezeh. She was told they had gone to Bombay for trading. When later Baha'u'llah ordered the repair of the house of the Bab so Khadija Bagum could go to live there again, Fezeh was overjoyed, stating that the master must be on his way back as the reason for the house being repaired. Years passed. And in her story, Khadija Bagom stated, My sister's son, Agha Mirza Agha, whom I had converted, grew up and wrote for me a letter to Baha'u'llah in Baghdad. And I was honored with an answer from the blessed beauty. Then it happened that Nabil, the historian, came to Shiraz, announcing that Baha'u'llah was the one promised by the Bab. As soon as I heard this, I experienced the same feeling as I had in the upper room before the Bab's declaration. I prostrated and offered my total submission and dedication to Baha'u'llah. The years went by and a letter came from my brother in Esfahan, who now was a Baha'i. Baha'u'llah gave him the title of Afnan Kabir, and the letter stated that Sheikh Salman, the celebrated courier of Baha'u'llah who had come to Shiraz many times with tablets and gifts from Baha'u'llah, was on his way to Akka, and was also taking Munir Khanum and her brother to attain the presence of Baha'u'llah in Akka. On their way they came to Shiraz and they stayed with me for two weeks. My nephew Ali was also visiting. Those were my happiest days since the Bab was taken from me. Munira Khanum, who became the wife of Abdul Baha, took three requests from Khadija Bagum to Baha'u'llah. One was that the Bab's house be repaired so she could live there again. Second, was to ask for the hand of Baha'u'llah's daughter, Farooqiyya Khanum, in marriage for her nephew Ali, and lastly, to have permission to attain the presence of Baha'u'llah. Baha'u'llah granted all three of her wishes. The nephew Ali had promised Khadija Bagum that if he was accepted as Baha'u'llah's son-in-law, he would take her with him to Akka. However, that fickle man, made excuses and broke his promise, going alone to Akka. This broke the heart of Khadija Bagum, who knew that it had been her last chance to go to the presence of Baha'u'llah. She became ill, and two months later, on September 15, 1882, passed away for the years after her marriage to the Bab. Her faithful maidservant, Fezzeh, died two hours later. Khadija Bagum was honored by Baha'u'llah with a tablet in which he stated that because of her, 
all who died on the day of her death were forgiven. She was buried that night within the shrine of Shah Chirag, which is an Islamic shrine, with the help of a caretaker of that shrine who was a Baha'i. Friends, the words tragic and sad fail to express the agonies suffered by Khadija Bagom. How grateful we should be for her being a part of our glorious history. In that short span of their marriage, she brought joy and comfort to the Bab. She converted her nephew, on whom Baha'u'llah conferred the title of Nuruddin, and later honored him with the tablets of the world, or Lohe Dunya. Of her precious legacies, the greatest, Shoghi Effendi, being the great-grandson of her illustrious brother, Mirza Abul Ghassem. Also the late hand of the cause, H. M. Baluzi, was a second cousin to Shoghi Effendi, both Afnan from the same brother. How could we end her story without appreciating the potent prayer? Is there any remover of difficulties which the blessed Bob revealed for her agonies? And now the world has the opportunity and the bounty to supplicate through it.